I think it's important for people to recognize that no matter how fascinated you might be by a black person's hair, we are not an exhibit or a curiosity. You're listening to Burnt Toast. This is the podcast about diet culture, fat phobia, parenting, and health. I'm Virginia Soul Smith, and I also write the Burnt Toast newsletter. Today, I am speaking with Sharon Hurley Hall. Sharon is an anti-racism activist, writer, and educator. She's firmly committed to doing her part to eliminate racism. As the founder and curator-in-chief of Sharon's Anti-Racism Newsletter, one of my favorite substacks. In this twice-weekly online publication, Sharon writes about existing while Black and majority white spaces and amplifies the voices of other anti-racism activists. She's also written and gross-written articles for companies and nonprofits who are looking to show up authentically with their DEIB and JEDI content. Sharon is also the head of anti-racism and a special advisor for the Diverse Leaders Group. And I asked Sharon to come on the podcast to talk about a piece she wrote on the newsletter a few weeks ago about the Crown Act and black hair and the ways in which white people perpetrate racism against black people for their hair. So it's a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. And we also get into how to talk about hair and skin color differences with your kids, which I found super, super helpful. And I think you will, too. So here's Sharon, but first, a quick break. This week, I just want to give you a quick nudge to listen to this podcast in your podcast player and rate and review it while you're there. I know a lot of you prefer to listen in your email, which is weird to me, but apparently you're doing it, or the Substack app, which I totally get. And a bunch of you also prefer to just read the transcripts, which you can always get by subscribing to the Burnt Toast newsletter at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. But... In order to continue to grow this podcast, we need to keep building our presence on Apple and Spotify and all of the players. So if you are already listening to this in a podcast player, thank you, gold star for you. Please scroll down and leave us a rating or a review. I think we're getting close to 50 ratings in Apple, which is so great, but it could be better. So make sure to do that and also make sure you are subscribed for free in your podcast player so you never miss an episode. This is such an easy and free way to support the show, and it means so much. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Virginia. I'm so happy you invited me. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't we start by having you tell my listeners a little more about yourself and your work? Okay, so I am an anti-racism writer and educator, a former journalist, and I have been writing about anti-racism-related stuff For longer than it appears, I actually (laughs) wrote my first article in 2016, but I wasn't doing it consistently. But I launched an anti-racism newsletter in 2020. So it's just been going for just about two years now. And in it, I share my perspectives based on being a global citizen. I was born in England. I grew up in the Caribbean. I lived in England as an adult. I visited the US. I lived in France. You know, I've been in a lot of places. I've experienced racism everywhere. And so I bring that lens to what I write about. You know, quite often we think what we're experiencing is the only way it's being experienced or it's unique to the location that we're in. And my experience is that there's a lot of commonality in how these things operate in different places. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm sure you're right. I have British and American citizenship, but I've lived my whole life in America. And I definitely think of this as an American issue very often. And just as you're saying that, I'm realizing how incredibly reductive that is to frame it through that. Although, you know, Americans certainly are a big part of the problem. 
Yes, but, or yes, and, <laughs> I suppose. You know, let's not forget that all of this started with, you know, the British people who, well, British and Europeans who colonized everywhere. Sure did. Right? Yep, absolutely. And that there are many places, you know, besides the USA that share this history of enslavement, Barbados and the Caribbean being among those places. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there are similarities. There are commonalities, I think. The difference I see It operates in a particularly American way in some ways, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in other places Mm -hmm. because it does. It's sometimes less visible. And of course, you know, because so many other places don't have a gun culture, you're less likely to end up dead as a black person, even if people are being racist towards you. Right, right. Yes, we add that real extra layer of things. Well, I am having you here today to talk about a piece of American legislation, though, because you wrote a really excellent piece for your newsletter, which I will link to in the transcript. I want everyone to subscribe and to be supporting your work. And often you're putting things on my radar that I have missed, and I just really appreciate the education that you do. And so this was a piece you wrote recently on the Crown Act, which I have to admit I wasn't even aware of as something that was happening. So for starters, for folks who aren't familiar with this, can you tell us a little bit about what the Crown Act is and what inspired it? Okay, so the Crown Act, the words Crown stand for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. It was sponsored by State Senator Holly Mitchell, I believe, from California. And then other states have since passed similar law. There is also a federal act which was passed by the House, I believe, earlier this year. The idea was that Black people should be able to wear their natural hair and not have it be a problem. And... You know, again, in all post-enslavement societies, in all post-colonial societies, in many white majority places, the way that our hair grows out of our head is a problem for people, right? You know, it can be seen as not professional. There are all sorts of ancient ideas, historic ideas about what Black people's hair is and isn't that play into the way that it is treated, right? Mm -hmm. And It's not just about being able to wear your hair. The respect piece is important as well. Because, you know, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how often. I mean, I worked in England for 15 years. And, you know, there were people that would come and say, oh, your hair. Let me, you know, let me. For for those listening, I'm running my hands through my hair. Your hair, you know, it it feels so different. Let me, you know, and they they would. Like it's okay to touch you. It's okay to just touch my hair. No. You know? Yeah. And so there has historically been this thing where Black people's hair, Black people's natural hair, and all the various styles that we put our hair in were not seen as worthy of respect, were not seen as professional, were not seen as acceptable. And all of that comes out of that whole white supremacist ideology. Yeah, that makes sense. So what I really appreciated in your piece, though, is you wrote that the ability to have legal redress for microaggressions around hair is obviously really important given this really problematic history that you've just sketched out for us. But you wrote, but why the hell do we need to legislate for Black people to enjoy autonomy over our hair? So talk a little more about that piece, because that was a really important point. 
Yeah, you know, white supremacy has really weaponized black hair in many ways. You know, it's been a matter of control that extended to using hair as another evidence of the reason why black people deserve to be enslaved because our hair was seen as like wool, animal-like, somehow bestial, somehow not right, okay? It was, you could think of the Tignon laws, which I think were in Louisiana, where black women's hair was supposed to be covered because otherwise the white guys would not be able to control themselves. Right. There was this idea that of overt sexuality as right. well that plays and into that the being whole your problem to control. That being our to, problem. To, right. Yes. Our problem that they needed to control. Right. Black women and black people being what they are, we made lemonade out of lemons. And so that's why you get these fabulous headdresses and head ties and so on. And they look absolutely wonderful. But, you know, the original idea was to control it, to cover it up to hide anything that would make us look more human and more beautiful. Often in the past, women have been encouraged to cover themselves up so that, you know, they don't get assaulted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, <laughs> that is another facet of that. And as I've said, you know, I don't know anybody who's worked in, a, any Black person who's worked in a white majority space, especially a woman who has not had some white person in their office space make free with their hair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would not do the same if the situations were reversed. And I want to add something here, which is that a lot of people, a lot of white people say, oh, but you know, I went to a country in Asia and people were fascinated by my straight blonde hair. Mm. And I say that is not the same thing because the history is different. The agency that you have historically had over your own body is different. When you, you know, coming out of a culture where we have not had that agency, somebody putting their hands in our hair lands very differently. Yeah, absolutely. It's always going to be a different experience. That's really important. But you're right, people do make that comparison. And I would imagine also there's some comparisons when you're pregnant, people feel like they can touch your stomach. And that is also very violating, but that's a finite piece. You're only going to be in that mode for nine months. I'm not saying it's okay that it happens. It shouldn't happen. Versus this is something Black people are being asked to navigate daily without other people adjusting. I just actually want to address that, Virginia, because then imagine if you're a Black pregnant woman. Oh, God. Yes. yes. Right? Because I was a Black pregnant woman. And so people would be putting their hand in my hair, but they'd also be touching my belly. And that felt extremely violating. Yes. Yes. It is. It, I mean, it just is. And Yes. And I in a way that I couldn't even fully articulate at the time as to why it bothered me so much, you know, yeah. but, but I know now why it bothered me so much. Yeah. And there's no way to, in those moments, you know, there's often no way to address it and feel safe or address it and, you know, put it back on the other person the way you would want to. Like, do you mind sharing a little bit about how you do navigate those moments or what you've, you know, how that's felt at times? At the time when it used to happen most often, I was not often in a position to navigate that safely mm -hmm. because people would then regard me as being the problem, regard me as being the angry black woman, right. regard me as making something out of nothing. And, you know, now I would be in a position to say something like, because of the history of enslavement, this does not feel good to me. This feels like a violation. And I could say it as plainly as that. Mm -hmm. And I think if you said it like that, people would pause and think about it. So, you know, 
again, I've not often had the chance to do that, but it's definitely something that I would do the next time it happens. Yeah. And of course, you know, the other weapon is, you know, a glare. A glare, yes. <laughs> the right kind of glare. You know, sometimes <laughs> you can see someone coming towards you and you just give them that look and yep. they think better of it. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's the mom look, you know, the, lo- the look that you, the look that you give your kid when they're about to do something that's really problematic and you don't even want to have to talk about it and it stops them in their tracks. Sometimes yep. you need to pull that look out. You need that look. <laughs> right? That makes sense. You need that look. I mean, and again, not to equate the experiences, but I did notice that getting touched while pregnant happened much less the second time. I think because I had learned that look a little bit, you know, like I think I was much clearer with the like, nope, this is, you're not, you're not allowed in this space. This is not good. Yeah. But of course, again, it's a very specific experience. I was wondering if we could also talk a bit about texturism. That's a concept you hit on in that piece as well. How do white people perpetrate this? And also, how does it play out within the Black community? Okay, so I'm going to start with the second question first. This is another offshoot of enslavement of that white supremacist ideal and ideology. The societies that we grow up in that say that white is right and that's what you aspire to. And, you know, it is true that, you know, in those times and even subsequently, If you had lighter skin, if you were closer to looking European, you had more opportunities open to you. And one of the ways this revealed itself was in your hair. So you will hear people. I mean, I certainly did when I was growing up. I would hear, you know, older people talk about good hair, right? Mm -hmm. And good hair meant it had a little wave in it. It was closer to what they would think of as European hair, right? And, you know, this happens in Black majority Caribbean countries, in Black communities all around the world, you know, in in so many places, in so many post-colonial spaces. And what is also interesting is that many white people feel more comfortable with those people that they see as having more proximity to them than the people that are darker skinned that they see as having less proximity to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure they're always consciously aware of it, Mm -hmm. but I know that it does happen. So, for example, you can look at things like casting in films and TV series and who gets what kind of roles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, where are the darker skinned people? What kind of roles do they get? What do the lighter skinned people with the wavy hair get? You know, who are the people that are representing black people in the ads? Who are the models? I mean, it's not 100 percent that way. But if you were to look at it, you would see that there's definitely this idea that having that wavy hair texture and that lighter skin can buy you some additional visibility and acceptability, you know. So it plays out in what hair is deemed acceptable and professional within the Black community and beyond the Black community. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm thinking, as you mentioned, casting, even when a very dark-skinned Black person is cast in a role, it's then the subject of like, look at how we're breaking ground. Look at what a big deal. You know, it has to be this like huge conversation because it's so rare. You know, like the assumptions prove the role here because we're still in a place where that's news when that shouldn't be news. That's very interesting. I'm hoping we can also talk a little bit about how to navigate this conversation with our kids because I do think hair and, you know, of course, skin color as well is often one of those physical differences that little kids, you know, I'm thinking like three, five, seven-year-olds will notice and sort of point out about people when they meet them. And often white parents have this instinct to rush in with, that's not nice, don't say anything. 
you know, and maybe they're speaking in terms of don't comment on that person's body because that's rude, but it also reinforces to white kids that there's something wrong with black hair, that this is something we can't talk about, you know, that this is off limits in some way. I remember actually living in France and I was driving somewhere with a white friend and her kid who was, I don't know, maybe three or four at the time. And he was fascinated by the fact that my skin was a different color. And so he asked if I'd stayed out in the sun too long. Mm. <laughs> and his mother was absolutely mortified. Yeah. And I laughed because, you know, he was three or four. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't coming at it from a hurtful point of view. And I said, you know, and I explained that, you know, people had different skin color. That's just how we are. I often think when you're dealing with these things, going with the factual is the way to go. Mm-hmm. A recognition that the differences exist but no suggestion that they mean something positive or negative Mm -hmm. in terms of how we interact with those people, you know? So you have to, at the same time, avoid suggesting that there's something negative about having darker skin or black skin, but also avoid suggesting that there's something particularly positive about having white skin. Right, right. Right? You have to do both things. Because people are going to notice, kids are going to notice, kids are going to see it, I think for very young kids, that kind of thing doesn't matter to them. We have to not shy away from the fact that there are aspects of society that are going to see these things as major differences and treat people differently. But we can also teach them that this is not something that they themselves have to do or perpetuate. So in that moment, you know, what would you have wished your friend had said to her kid? It sounds like you handled it beautifully, but it shouldn't be your job to handle it. What do you want white parents to be doing to handle it better? Definitely not, you know, come down on the kid like a ton of bricks suggesting Mm -hmm. that they've done something wrong in even asking the question, you know, possibly reframing the question. Mm -hmm. And possibly, you know, parents have to educate themselves so that when they get these questions, they have the answers. Right. Because I I don't know that that particular parent would have even known what to say or how to explain it. I think often the reason we panic is because we're having our own stuff called out. We're suddenly realizing, oh, I don't have the right language for this. And that's on me. I should have done that work. So Yes, yes. And so, you know, if you're going to raise anti-racist kids, you have to be an anti-racist parent. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes. It means that you recognize that this is the route that we have to travel for, you know, all our humanity Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. for equality and for equity for all. Yeah, absolutely. Another way I get asked this question often is how to respond if your three-year-old says, you know, why is that lady so fat, you know, and comments on body size. And I always go with something like bodies come in all different shapes and sizes and, you know, colors and colors. Right. And so that's a similar way, you know, hair comes in all different colors and styles and, you know, hair comes in different textures. You can just normalize it without getting into some like, you know, intense thing about it. Especially for young kids, you know, you have different conversations with your kids about things like this at different ages. Mm -hmm. You know, if your kid is three, you don't necessarily have to give them the whole history of colonialism, you know? (laughs) (laughs) If your kid is 12, well, you know, that might be different. You should should be doing that, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Because we teach our kids at a very young age about stranger danger and unwanted touching. And it's a good time to say that that also extends to touching people's skin and hair when they have not asked for it. Yes. I think that is something that would fit very nicely with that lesson. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 
to just say, you know, no one can touch your body without permission. You don't touch other people's bodies without permission. Exactly. Yeah. And fortunately, young children will give you plenty of opportunities to reinforce that too. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> they're definitely. Because they're curious and they're always, yeah. you know, sticking yeah. their hands in things. And yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. This is obviously such a huge topic, black hair. But, you know, what haven't I asked you that you think is really important for us to be thinking about? I think it's important for people to recognize that no matter how fascinated you might be by a black person's hair, we are not an exhibit or a curiosity. And so just don't touch the hair. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just don't touch the hair. Some people are so traumatized by it that even if you asked to touch the hair, they'd still be upset. We are coming out of a history where you know, black people for centuries had no agency, where in some countries we were put on display. And those very features that you now want to treat as a curiosity were the things that were displayed. So, you know, it's not just about it being wrong in this moment. It's all the generational trauma that is awakened by that. Right. And so it's really best avoided. You know, Google is available if you want to find out more. (laughs) Right. If you have a real black friend, and I'm not talking about somebody you work with that you don't even sit with at at lunchtime. You know, I'm talking about somebody that's actually in your life, right? Then maybe you can have those more in-depth conversations with that person. Yeah. But, you know, if if we're talking about your colleagues and casual acquaintances, you know, for best results, just keep your hands out of their hair. I was just going to add that from the point of view of your workplace, what you can do is you can, you know, look at what your policies say. Make sure that they are equitable in terms of what's seen as professional. Do your bit to change mm. things where you are. That's a great idea. Yes, yes. Encourage us to do a little more there. Yeah, and I just wanted to share your rage for a moment that it is 2022 and we are having to say don't touch people's hair and we are having to pass laws to protect people from this. You know, I mean, it is astounding to me that body autonomy is not more of a, I mean, well, I live in the United States where they're taking body autonomy away in so many different ways right now. You know, if you think, about how the country started. If you think about how the country started, right, it started by taking stuff away from the people that were here. Mm -hmm. It started by taking autonomy away from the Black people they brought in. Mm -hmm. It started in a time when women didn't have very many rights at all. Yeah. And all of this was still the case at the point when the country became the country. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And so... Maybe it's time to rethink what the country is and should be and could be mm-hmm. instead of going back to what was the norm in 1776. Right, which protected only one type of person. I mean, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's the 21st century. We should be yeah. beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I so appreciate you you know, giving us this education, taking the time to talk through this issue more. I think it's one that all of us can be doing better on. And yes, encouraging us to think about how it's playing out in our workplaces and our kids' schools, all of that. And what we can be doing is really helpful. We wrap up every podcast with my Butter for Your Burnt Toast segment. This is just where we give a fun recommendation of something we are loving or learning from right now. So Sharon, what's your butter? Well, the funny thing about it, it's a little bit of self-promotion in a way because I've just started a new gig at Diverse Leaders Group, a brand new startup as the head of anti-racism. 
And our aim is to identify, develop, and support leaders at all levels. And that's anyone wanting to lead the way to equality in their own lives and for their communities. And we're starting with anti-racist leaders. Mm-hmm. So I'm pumped about, you know, developing community support and educational resources to help people really live anti-racism and create a more equal world for everybody. This sounds amazing. And please send me links to that so we can promote that and encourage everyone to check it out. That's fantastic. And my recommendation related to our conversation about black hair is a kid's book that both my daughters have really loved over the years called Don't Touch My Hair by Cherie Miller. And it is a great story of a black girl who has amazing hair and everybody when she walks down the street, wants to touch it and she doesn't like it. And she uses her voice to tell people to stop and they have to listen. And it's a great story, obviously, for helping kids. You know, we talked about with your three-year-old, you're not going to explain all of colonialism, but you can start to talk to your three and four-year-old about, you know, Black kids have to deal with this. You know, your straight hair doesn't attract the same attention. So that was a conversation I wanted to be having with them. But they also relate so deeply to just this experience of a kid getting unwanted attention and how do you sort of say your body is yours. And so there's certainly a universal theme as well as it being a great way to have this conversation and help kids understand this issue. So I wanted to recommend that. And Sharon, tell everyone the name of your newsletter and anything else you want us to be following. You know, how can we support you? Okay, so my newsletter is Sharon's Anti-Racism Newsletter. So you can support me by taking a paid subscription because one day I would like to run the newsletter full time. Yes. And you can also join the Anti-Racist Leaders Association, which I mentioned earlier, and take the lead in fighting racism wherever you are. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I really loved this conversation. Thank you, Virginia. I enjoyed it too. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks so much for listening to Burnt Toast. Once again, if you would like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player and leave us a rating and a review. And tell a friend about this episode. And consider a paid subscription to the Burnt Toast newsletter. It's just $5 a month or $50 for the year. You get a ton of cool perks and you keep this an ad and sponsor-free space. Find out more at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. The Burnt Toast podcast is produced and hosted by me, Virginia Soul Smith. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at V underscore Soulsmith. Our transcripts are edited and formatted by Corinne Fay, who runs at Sell Trade Plus, an Instagram account where you can buy and sell plus size clothing. The Burnt Toast logo is by Deanna Lowe. Our theme music is by Jeff Bailey and Chris Maxwell, and Tommy Heron is our audio engineer. Thanks for listening and supporting independent anti-diet journalism.